Dakota Palicki is the director of Talent Hubs with Civic Lab. In this role, he serves exemplary cross-sector partnerships focused on post-secondary attainment that have met rigorous standards for partnership health, equity, and systems change. He brings his expertise in post-secondary education, collective impact, stakeholder engagement, and change management to a network of nearly 100 partnerships, supporting their efforts to improve the human condition. Dakota also hosts Lumina Foundation's podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, which features conversations with newsmakers and leaders in the field of learning after high school. You should check it out. Prior to this role, Dakota was a strategy officer with Lumina Foundation, a senior district administrator at Chicago Public Schools, founder and executive director of a teacher preparation nonprofit, the university program administrator, and a music teacher. He believes that the greatest change happens at the local and regional level and is a champion of participatory governance that shifts power to self-determined communities that work collaboratively to improve the place they call home. Welcome back, Dakota. So glad to be here, Tessa. I think I'm so excited because we had such a great chat last time and I am excited to continue the conversation. So much has changed since March. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. You know, the world world is spinning and moving quick. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, we we chatted last time. I'm not going to ask you about your career pathway because we talked about that, um, how you ended up in philanthropy in season two, uh, the episode two of the talent talk. So if folks are interested in that, they can go back to that. But your your role has shifted again. Mm-hmm. So you're doing a lot of the same work, but now, you know, things have kind of shifted and changed with with Lumina and 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 uh, the talent hub. So can you maybe just bring us up to speed on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're right. It is the same kind of work. Um, actually, in many ways, the same work, uh, just bigger and uh, bolder and, uh, you know, more sustained, uh, honestly. So, um, you know, just to remind uh, the listeners from the last time we talked, you know, uh, this kind of using cross-sector partnership to improve outcomes uh, for higher education uh, and for workforce, um, you know, Lumina started in uh, that kind of work of uh, how do we bring together the public, private, and social sectors back in 2012. And, um, you know, uh, as it grew and, and, and changed over and as we built the Talent Hub designation and uh, along the way, we, we built a large network of nearly 100 of these kind of community and regional partnerships around the country, uh, Lumina was entering into its next strategic plan phase. And um, uh, while Lumina continues to pursue its bold goals, uh, one of the things philanthropy gets to do and should do is to really drive towards a future. And sometimes that means that in philanthropy, you have to make really hard choices around how to distribute, you know, uh, your limited resources appropriately. Uh, And what that meant at Lumino is that as they were um, putting uh, more resources towards the kinds of strategies that they uh, do believe uh, will improve post-secondary attainment for the country, uh, they had to make really hard choices about some of the portfolios um, that uh, had been around. Um, our portfolio um, of talent hubs and our community mobilization strategy was one of those. Um, what I'm really appreciative of is that Lumina's leadership 
um, could have easily, could have easily just said, hey, we're going to cut this. I'm sorry, Dakota, close it up and uh, let's move on. But, you know, to their credit, um, they really recognized that we were, uh, our strategy, our partners were very successful, that there was a big movement uh, and that we are, um, you know, really leading in this very unique field that is no longer niche, uh, but is actually rather large. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they recognized that there was a, a need to continue it going. Uh, and so the challenge became, well, how do we continue this work? How do we make this work um, into a permanently sustained kind of uh, role um, that is no longer entirely reliant on continued philanthropic investment? And so uh, they uh, asked uh, me and my colleagues at Lumina to figure out what a transition strategy would be. And so uh, in February of 2021, we transitioned um, talent hubs and the community network, which is now called the National Talent Network, uh, into a institute uh, based here in Indiana called Civic Lab. And, you know, Future Makers uh, has been a long time partner to Civic Lab. Civic Lab is a fantastic institute focused on improving civic collaboration around the country, um, focused on um, systems design, systems redesign, uh, and ultimately uh, finding ways to help support communities uh, and regions and partnerships uh, to tackle complex social challenges that ultimately improve the human condition. Um, and so uh, they're a great home for our work. Um, civic Lab has been part of the Town Hall work for a long time, part of Luminous Communalization efforts for a long time. But you know, beyond that, the, the, the real thing is here, Tessa, is that we're really trying to be a very different kind of organization. And that's really easy to say and much more difficult to do. Uh, and I'm happy to dig into that a bit, but um, I'll say that one of the reasons we uh, chose Civic Lab um, is because of their approach, is because of their culture, and is because of their very principally driven method of work that not only permeates the kind of way they support communities, but also into their back office business operations, into their own talent and hiring. Uh, It's truly one of the most principally led organizations I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's been a really great home. And so since February, we've just been hard at work um, getting Town Hubs, the National Talent Network, um, you know, kind of in this new home, doing everything from building our website and, you know, engaging in the blog space and doing all those kind of back office operations. But we've also had a number of uh, new projects come our way, um, new places that are interested in pursuing the designation, Mm. uh, new communities and partnerships that have joined our National Talent Network. Um, so it's been a it's been a busy uh, couple months, but um, very exciting nonetheless. Yeah, it's amazing how much can change in such a short period of time. Um, well, you know, so I think maybe I'm gonna push on that question just a tiny bit more because I think for me and you, m- maybe it's obvious what that means uh, or what this looks like going forward. I, I mean, it's not obvious, obviously it could go in a lot of different directions, but we talk and work like this all the time. Like you said, I've been, Future Makers has been involved with Civic Lab from the very, very beginning. Um, people in this community all the way down here in Southwest Florida know Jack and John, um, Jack Hess and John Burnett. 
because they were our coaches when we very first started developing the Future Makers Coalition and have stuck with us ever since. They are Future Makers, so are you. Um, but I guess for just like the average person, what do you sort of mean when you talk about this sustained organization? Like what is the organization? What what does it do? It's a great question. And um, honestly, a little difficult to explain sometimes. So I, I will do my best yeah. on this. Um, you know, maybe I can just try to tell a little bit of a story. Um, we all live in communities. Uh, we might think of our community as our city. It could be our neighborhood. Uh, it could be um, anything. We live in a context in a community. And community members um, will see a challenge. Uh, maybe that challenge has to do with, you know, uh, poverty. Maybe the challenge has to do something with mental health access uh, to services. Maybe it has to do with educational attainment and workforce outcomes. And so community members then start to ask themselves, well, how might we start working together uh, to tackle these really complex problems? Because the challenges that communities face on a daily basis uh, uh, cannot be solved by a single sector. It can't be solved by a single organization. Uh, if it could, then chances are those problems should be solved. And that's a different way. We know how to tackle single sector and single organization issues. We're very good at that as a country, as a nation, as communities. But for the more complex ones, you know, for the ones where it does require and everyone's a little bit involved, uh, communities have to figure out, well, how do we best work together? Um, and so what we do is we specialize in that how. Mm -hmm. um, we uh, work with communities and regions. Um, some are as tiny as, you know, single couple blocks in a, you know, um, down in Miami or Orlando. Um, others are multi-state collaboratives that span 40 counties, right? So the size doesn't matter because everyone belongs to differing size of communities. Mm -hmm. But they're all trying to do the same thing, which is work together uh, to solve a problem that no one organization or sector can do alone. Mm -hmm. What we've found over the course of time, Tessa, is that there are a lot of organizations and people and experts in the field that say, trust us, we know how to do it. And if you follow our 10 steps, you will, you know, crack the code. Mm -hmm. We don't believe that. We have never seen that to be true. And I'll say that uh, for all of our partners that we get the honor to serve and support like Future Makers, you all have told us that. You have told us that when you've interacted with other organizations and entities that um, uh, have specialty, and certainly they are highly qualified and smart people, but you've always said that you find yourself, a community has to contort themselves to fit a model that a large organization or expert says, this is the one way to do things. There is not one way to go about this work. No one community is similar. That doesn't mean we can't learn from one another. That doesn't mean that we can't strengthen one another. And quite frankly, what we've also heard from folks like you and other leaders around the country um, is that they actually learn the most when they can connect with other collaborative leaders who are trying to tackle the same problems. Mm -hmm. And so what our organization does is a, a lot of things. Um, you know, Civic Lab as an institute, um, ha you know, we are not consultants and we are not experts, we are practitioners. We do this work on a daily basis in our home county and in our home community of Columbus, Indiana. 
Civic Lab is a program of the Community Education Coalition, which is very similar to Future Makers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're practitioners. Uh, what that means is that our approach is we're going to, we've been documenting things that work. Uh, we've been learning from other people. We try to put that in trainings and then we bring it to people and communities and organizations uh, like yours and partnerships and say, here's what's going on. How does this work for you? It's a model agnostic approach. We're not trying to tell you, you have to look like this thing. Uh, instead, we're trying to equip you with uh, ideas, frameworks, tools, and a way of looking at the world and systems um, uh, that allows you and your community, one that is self-determined to uh, you know, solve its own, uh, own challenges. Um, you know, One quick little aside, <clears throat> one of our partners once told us, hey, when we went through this other organization that's really well known who mm-hmm. does this kind of collective impact you work, I was with a cohort of 10 people and we all went in uniquely us and we came out all the same. Suddenly we're all measuring the same metrics. We're all using the same this, the same that, even though they are in completely different parts of the United States and they have completely different people that they're serving and they have completely different partnerships. And then she said, but Dakota, when we work with Civic Lab and we work with talent hubs, we came in unique and we come out even more unique. We came out stronger because we're leveraging our uniqueness. And so that's what Civic Lab has been really good at for a very long time. You know, for talent hubs, um, we do a variety of things. You know, one is that, um, as I mentioned before, there is a real hunger for fellow practitioners to learn from one another and to not have some kind of paywall or expert or consultant in the way uh, of that learning. They want to call and grab the phone or text or shoot an email to their colleagues in Nashville or Cincinnati or Shasta County or Rio Grande Valley or Spokane or, you know, uh, you you know, wherever uh, around the country, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and say, hey, I'm trying to hire a navigator. Hey, we want to do debt forgiveness. Hey, I'm trying to tackle this problem. Have you gotten a are you good at getting employers on uh, engaging your work? How are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to create a network that allows, and we have a network. We have a network that allows people uh, to make those kinds of connections with fellow practitioners in a way that truly serves them. Um, in addition to that, <clears throat> you know, we essentially do uh, two other big things. Uh, one is that we still know that uh, there is a need for a designation, for the talent hub designation to mark places as exemplar. Because we do live in a model agnostic world, because we do know that these partnerships can take so many forms, there still needs to be some way of saying who is really, really good at this uh, and who might we all learn from. So we fully intend on continuing to designate places and supporting uh, partnerships that want to pursue that very high bar of excellence that you all have earned. Um, And, you know, the other thing is that we need to continue to elevate your voice. And as a national organization, we are here to serve you, period. I know I tell you this all the time, every time we talk or text or email, I am on your team. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to pay me. Uh, I'm not, you know, you don't, you know, I'm not on your HR list or your payroll, but I'm on your team. And part of that means that uh, I have the honor of uh, trying to um, amplify um, the work that you do, the work that your partners do on a daily basis through any means that I possibly can. So we know that uh, designating, elevating, and supporting uh, talent hubs and others that are in the National Talent Network are really critical to us. Yeah. Well, I have to say, that was a really good explanation. Good job. Oh, well, thank you. Good job. I think, I mean, I think even I understand it a little bit more now. I mean, you know, I know what you do, and I often compare sort of what you do to like the bigger version of what I do, right? Mm-hmm. But 
um, it is it's really helpful to have you explain it like that because there has been a big transition and it is, you know, what are the core sort of priorities and services that you provide? And I have lived it. So, um, you know, Future Makers is an example of what can happen when you tap into a network. I mean, we're we aren't the youngest anymore when it comes to, you know, being a a community network that's working to transform the workforce, but we are younger and and we haven't de- we have not delved into every single kind or opportunity type of opportunity that we could here. And so having these peers um, that are doing it elsewhere and have realized success and that you can find the folks that are struggling with some of the same problems that you are and look at how they've solved those problems or how they are solving those problems. It's incredibly useful. Um, we do, we have done, we have benefited tremendously from just being able to talk to people who a understand how lonely it can feel to try to lead some of this work in a community. And therefore they are 100% willing to help you and B mm-hmm. who are, super talented themselves and doing really, really amazing things. And so Future Makers has benefited greatly from that. Um, Future Makers has benefited so much from Civic Lab over the years. I mean, so, so much. And now I would say, you know, Dakota, you have become, you are becoming sort of now a, a Southwest Floridian yourself. You don't even have to show up here. People now know who you are. So you're, that that level of support is incredibly valuable because when you're doing this kind of work, there isn't a lot of other comparable work usually going on in a community, especially a community that's maybe not as big as some of the major metropolitan areas. So you, you do have to go outside. Um, and we don't, and it, collaboration does take longer, I will say. It definitely takes longer. Um, but that's okay because we're not solving it on our own. We're not solving these problems on our own. It takes longer, but being part of this, you know, talent network and being a talent hub does actually shorten the length of time, I think, to start something that could have a profoundly big impact, measurable impact in a, in a community or region or or however you want to designate the ge- the geography of that. Um, you know, that's absolutely that hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, the fact is, is that, you know, of course we meet collaboration skeptics who say like, I don't know, kind of sounds like fluff what you do, man. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what I remind them is that, listen, um, this kind of cross-sector collaboration, this kind of systems redesign, change management work um, should be used with intention. You know, I agree. Not everything in the world that we have to accomplish requires a full cross-sector partnership, Mm -hmm. which just means that when you choose to use that and when you choose to get people in a room uh, from your community to tackle a challenge, it has to be a challenge that um, uh, warrants uh, and is deserving of everyone's collective attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why it's so critical when we see collaboratives who have startup that, you know, haven't really, you know, uh, reached the talent hub designation level, you know, some of them kind of die out after a couple of years. One of the, there's many, 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 many reasons. 
One of them, it was exactly this issue where uh, they're trying to bring a lot of people together and uh, people feel like they're not actually working towards anything mm -hmm. that is meaningful or that they're working towards something or uh, that, that is really the responsibility of a single organization. And so I think that's something that Future Makers does really, really well. Um, and you're at the point where you're starting to show I mean, you have shown before, but you know, even most recently, you, you've been showing some really great outcomes. I mean, between uh, some of your institutional partners and the work that you all have done as a region to do some real barrier busting work uh, across multiple counties, you all have re-enrolled 800 more people mm -hmm. and put them on a pathway to uh, a, a credential. And I know many of them have already graduated within the first term. Uh, those are real results, real people's lives that you're changing there that um, I would argue would not have been as quickly earned if the higher ed partners themselves alone tried to do this mm -hmm. work. You know, it, it's, it's hastened uh, because you have the relationships in place, because there's trust, um, and because you, uh, you and all your partners in, in Southwest Florida have a common vision for the future. You know, and, and it's funny because when I talk about the Future Makers uh, Coalition, you know, one of the things that really sticks out to me about something that's very unique to you all um, and I'm still, this is still kind of in hypothesis land, but I, I, I think I'm onto something. I think you're onto something because you created it and, and you guys created it. You know, you call, when I'm with you all, everyone introduces themselves as, hi, I'm Dakota Palicki. I'm with this organization and I'm a future maker. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly powerful and incredibly unique. Even our other talent hubs and other really effective partnerships there isn't an identity that is applied at the individual level. The identity of the partnership exists at the organizational level. Oh, my institution is a partner to this initiative. Uh, my organization, my department is a member of this initiative. I am a guiding team member of this mm -hmm. initiative. But you all, everyone there identifies themselves as a future maker, as well as has those organizational level and initiative level affiliations and identity. And that identity is so important because I can imagine that if I was in your community and I was going to work every day and I think to myself, even just for the fleeting moment, maybe it's at the back of my head, I'm a future maker. That makes me think one, I'm belonging to something much larger. Two, that the work I'm gonna do today uh, needs to be connected to this broader vision that is about my entire region and not just about my department or organization or work today. And two, that, um, it's not about today's competition and today's problems. It is about what is best for our future. And it really requires you to think about, uh, you know, the future of your home when you're going to leave it. When we are all dust and done, I know this is kind of sad thinking, but like in a hundred years, you know, uh, when we're gone, um, you know, uh, what does our home look like? And have we, contributed to making it a better place uh, for the generations to come. And I think by uh, you all having such a strong individual identity, as well as a partnership identity, is something that really makes you all unique. And, and the last thing I'll just say is that it's authentic. You know, it is not performative. It, it's not people going around introducing themselves like, oh, I'm a future maker today. But like, I, it, you know, I was just at your champions breakfast and people were like, oh, I think I was an original future maker. Mm -hmm. And then people are, you know, like competing for, you know, like, oh, well, I started here and, you know, yeah. oh, I'm kind of a, you know, this or that. There's variations on future makers now. People are owning that identity. And that is just incredibly powerful when you think about the collaborative momentum that's required to make real change 
at the local and regional level. Yeah. Well, that is a fantastic observation. And yes, we do we do talk frequently about putting on your future makers hat and today you're all future makers you know take off your regular title let's let's all be future makers and think like future makers today um and that has that has proven very powerful we've broken down a lot of barriers around various problems with that sort of mentality i think that um there's another part to it too that i've noticed and that is you know, some of the folks and organizations that we work with are very, they're, 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 they're in difficult times. And it's hard, I think, to go to work every day if you work at a school district sometimes or if you work at a large educational institution that's, you know, having issues with funding or enrollment or all mm-hmm. the things, right? Or if you're in HR at a you know, at a healthcare provider and you have 1,800 vacancies every day lately and there's just nothing you can do about it. That's hard. You know, we all go to work for different reasons. And I think one thing I've heard a lot of people say is when you come to a future makers meeting or you're doing something with future makers, not only are you like advancing the goal of your own organization and helping yourself in your own job, but it's an opportunity to do something that you you aren't allowed to do usually in your on your on your own, right? You can try things that you never would have tried on your own. And I think that that sort of like innovative and entrepreneurial spirit of piloting something with very minimal risk, seeing if it works, measuring it, working with other people, getting to know these other folks, knowing who to call when you have another problem because you have met them because you're both future makers. I just think that there's there's a reward that comes with that that sometimes is hard to get when you're in the grind of the day-to-day within your job. It's fun. And I always joke around with people and I say, you know, we can try you can try things here that you can't try maybe on your in your day job, and if it doesn't work, just blame future makers. What's that anyway, right? right? So, so it's a it's an interesting concept to see how how very motivational it can be for individuals. So, I really appreciate you kind of pointing that out because I hadn't really thought about it to the extent that you had. And also, I don't have your perspective, right? So, I don't see how everybody else does it, but I do know that that there is a lot of pride around being part of the coalition, especially when when people work together and actually accomplish something cool and good. Absolutely. And it's, it's not surprising at all. I mean, um, that, you know, the fact is, you, you know, you and I were ju- just talking about this today too, uh, or the other day, you know, I think, uh, people around the country and communities, um, you know, are, are becoming much more reliant on their fellow neighbors, uh, to, uh, you know, to build communities and to solve the challenges that they have. Uh, I mean, we were just talking about some Gallup data, and I mean, there's a lot of data that goes into this. There's a lot of research, there's a lot of other other information that we can pull uh, into this. But you know, uh, Gallup um, since 1972 has been tracking uh, surveys of uh, the confidence uh, in America and Americans' percep- you know, the, the perception of confidence of among Americans in their government. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they measure so many other things, but you know, they started tracking this in 1972. Um, and what's, you know, not surprising, but very, very sad is that 
you know, uh, in 1972, the percent of Americans who felt that they had no confidence at all in the federal government to solve domestic problems was 3%. Um, as of September of this year, uh, it is now at 26%. Wow. It's the highest it's ever been. Uh, and think about that just for a second, because that spans multiple administrations, that spans parties. You know, this is just basic confidence that our federal government has the ability to even solve our own domestic problems. And again, it's no confidence at all. You know, the, the folks who have, you know, even just a little bit of confidence and maybe no confidence when you combine them, you know, uh, it, it's really what we see is there's only 39% of Americans who have any confidence at all uh, in the federal government to solve uh, the problems that you're experiencing at home. And state governments aren't faring much better. You know, that same Gallup data starting in 72, 1972, uh, 6% of Americans felt that they had no confidence in their state government to solve the problems that their communities are facing. That number is also now at a record high at 19%. Jeez. And so, you know, what I hear is that gone are the days, gone are the days where we as community members can really rely on our federal and state government agencies and elected officials to solve the problems that we're facing on a daily basis. But that doesn't mean that they don't need solved and it doesn't mean that it's hopeless. It means that people are turning to their own communities mm -hmm. and they're turning to regional collaboratives. They're turning to places, Tessa, where they can actually get involved, where they can show up in a room, where they can contribute their own time, talent and treasure to solve a complex challenge that is in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, here in my own neighborhood, I'm part of my, you know, neighborhood association in, in, on the southwest uh, side of Indianapolis in Fountain Square. It's a great neighborhood. And, you know, we're, we're having issues with, you know, street repair and people speeding and, um, you know, Airbnb, uh, you know, not uh, some short-term rental uh, issues um, that, that are, you know, causing all sorts of problems, all, all these things. And yeah, we have tried to go through our state officials and our city officials and, you know, they, I get it. They have, they're busy. They have a huge long list. They have a lot of constituents. We're getting ignored. Mm -hmm. um, okay. What do we do? We don't, we're not just going to sit around. It's our community. There's, there's kids playing in the park across my street and there are people flying through on a stop sign. Well, I can go out there and using some creative place, creative placemaking strategies, repaint the intersection to make a little bit more vibrant which has shown time and time again across, uh, you know, across the, the world, honestly, in placemaking case studies, yeah. that it actually slows down traffic because it's visually a little bit more, uh, you know, engaged. Um, I can do that. I'm going to do that. I'm like literally in my Amazon cart is marking chalk right now because I'm going to do that one of these weekends. <laughs> um, and, you know, the neighborhood association is behind it. So I, I think the point is, is that you're right. More and more neighbors are turning uh, their attention uh, to the places that they can, um, you know, that they that uh, that can actually support and solve the challenges that they're facing. Okay, that well, you are right, and I think that, it, and it goes back to you know, sort of my background in sustainability, right? So you you think global but act local, and you know, people talk about big sustainability goals, whether at the community level or regional or state or you know global level when it comes to sustainability people grapple with how do you do that how do you do that you don't do it unless you start local i mean it is literally the only way to do it you've got to work 
from the local level up. And so I think, um, and then you find examples of where it's going well. And then you try to, you know, look at how those examples can grow and, and inspire other communities. And I think that that's really, you know, we've been headed in this direction for a while. Um, but I do, I think like those statistics that you just share, first of all, even though it's shocking to hear them, it doesn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, we hear this every day. Um, but, you know, it speaks to how we are going to have to become much more ingenious in the way that we solve our problems. And it is going, if we're, if we're all going to feel a lack of faith in um, our systems, then we're all going to have to step up if we want to see something change. Yeah. Um, And, you know, again, you know, um, I, uh, I'm not saying that there isn't a role for federal state government. Oh yeah. And in fact, when we talk to, when you talk to state and federal uh, elected officials or their staff, they are worn out, they're tired, uh, and they have to respond to, you know, 2000 things on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. To me, if we actually were to take an objective step back, that is an issue of role clarity that we're having. Uh, as a country, we have gotten to the point where, you know, uh, we just started relying a little bit too much on government to solve every problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, government responded by saying, yeah, yeah, we'll do it because that's what got you elected. Mm. And it became this cycle. And so now what we find is, wait a minute, we've made all these promises and assumptions on how uh, the uh, social compact works between government and citizens. Um, and there's a lot of people who feel like it's been violated. In reality, the the fact is is that we need government to focus on the things that are uniquely their domain. Okay, we should stop relying on them to try to solve all of our problems, and instead tighten that scope a little bit. And I'm not going to sit here and say here's all the ways that we tighten that scope because that's when we get into political ideology, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that um, I don't think it's unreasonable, and I think almost everyone across the spectrum, uh, the political spectrum, would agree that what we really need is stronger role clarity and let's let's free up government time and uh you know elected officials time to focus on the things that they're uniquely positioned and qualified to do and simultaneously redistribute resources and power to communities and to collaboratives like yours to enable them to do the things that you are uniquely positioned to do Mm. you know um you know i am not me and my talent of an organization we're not uniquely positioned to uh, think about, um, you know, regulation around emission standards uh, from a national level. That's not my role. Mm -hmm. I can have a voice in it. I'll have a vote in it, um, but that's it. I am, however, completely responsible for my intersection outside my door here. Mm -hmm. I am, however, completely responsible for the discuss of the kids who go to school at the elementary schools that are on either block of me here. And I am completely responsible uh, for the student success of my alma mater that I'm a board member of, mm-hmm. um, and you know the other uh, schools that are here in my city, um, and so let's bring and redistribute power and resources that are more proximal to the people who are best positioned to solve it, which then frees up the ability of uh, other um, you know entities at the federal and state level to do the work that they can do best, and I just think that that's where we're at. Um, and you all are perfectly positioned to kind of continue to lead the work that you're doing um, and, and have really proven that a regional 
approach works. Yeah. And a regional approach can actually drive change and make outcomes and make a real change in, in, uh, in the place that we call home. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And I think you're right. I want to switch gears just a tiny bit, just like a tweak. Yeah, um, so I, I wanted to mention or see, get it, get your sense of like, what draws you to this work? Um, you know, you, you've worked in education, um, you worked in philanthropy, you're, you've chosen to not only extend what you were doing already in the philanthropic sector, but to, to grow it and sustain it. But it's in a place of work that's not very common when it comes to collaboration um, and, it, and, and even further supporting the idea of other communities collaborating and working together to solve some of these problems. What draws you to that complex work? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things. I mean, uh, one I'll say is I think that once people take a moment to think and learn about um, the real power of cross-sector collaboration to uh, solve complex challenges, it's very hard to unsee it. Mm. You know, my wife makes fun of me all the time because she's like, oh, wait, Dakota, is that a systems thing? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's a systems thing. And like, we'll be at a restaurant, you know, like the food comes out late. I'm like, oh, I'm like, well, it's a systems thing. Like, yeah. here it is. Um, once you <laughs> see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, and so I am, you know, it's, you, you have to lean in and just decide, well, this is who I am now. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, we bump into people, there's a really great new collaborative in Kentucky. Um, and, uh, she was also an, an early kind of uh, participant in John and Jack's training here at civic lab. And, uh, we just reconnected the other day and she said, I have been going around and talking about this way of thinking my entire work life, even though I haven't talked to you all in close to a decade. Yep. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, but beyond that, for me, I think that, you know, it actually starts out uh, way earlier. Uh, and it took me a while to realize this, but it's a, it's a deeply personal thing. I, I am the result of a community coming together um, to make sure one person, one kid, had a chance to be successful. Um, it took an entire community to get me where I am today, you know, um, you know, I grew up in, uh, early, uh, you know, Northern Illinois in a, in a place that was always trying to become a suburb, even though it was, you know, surrounded by farmland. Um, and you know, we, we had a lot of, we had a lot of challenges. I mean, we were, uh, you know, it was, a, my mom was out raising us. I had three older sisters and myself, um, you know, she was constantly jobless. Um, you know, um, we struggled with mental illness. We struggled with drug abuse in our house and, and domestic violence. Uh, we had bouts of homelessness. Uh, we were constantly getting kicked out and evicted and, you know, bouncing from place to place. Um, and, you know, um, that's not an unusual story, regrettably. Um, you know, and that's why, honestly, I kind of don't, I don't talk about all that often because I know that, like, there's a lot of people listening right now that say, yeah, okay, you've just described a fairly large, too large amount of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, here's how my story is different is that, you know, there was a group of people who, um, you know, cared about me and then also went way out of their way to do way more than they were asked to do uh, to support me. Um, you know, it started with a, um, you know, a friend's family, my best friend, uh, in school, 
you know, his family started taking me in. They always used to joke uh, every time I would go over to their house and hang out or we would go on a camping trip and I would tell them these like crazy stories and they'd always be like, wow, he has a real active imagination. Hmm. And then one day they came like to my house to pick me up and they're like, oh my God, maybe he wasn't lying. Hmm. Like maybe, that, maybe these are real. Uh, and so they really took me under their wing. Um, and uh, eventually uh, I started living with them part-time. I started living with them when, you know, our family was going through something and needed a temporary place to stay. I would go to them and live with them. Um, you know, they helped me get a job. I started working when I was 11. By the time I was 14, I had three jobs. When bill collectors called our house, they asked for me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, not for not for my, my, my mom or, you know, my sisters at all, um, you know, because I was the one who had money coming the door. But, you know, I got employed at a very, very young age by community business owners. Mm. And I know now that I'm an adult, that is because the Schneiders went to them and said, hey, this kid works hard and he's good, you know, but he just needs this. Can you hire him? And, you know, who hires a 14 year old? Well, Happy Jack's, the ice cream shop that I worked at did. <laughs> and okay, it might've been like three hours, you know, after school, uh, two days a week. And who knows if Jack really needed that help, but he gave me a job. Um, you know, um, my teachers really looked out for me and gave me opportunities. You know, by the time I was in uh, high school, I was really active in band, which by the way, is a complete safe haven for kids who are trying to stay out of the school because nothing is more time consuming than band, being a band kid. <laughs> you have marching band, you have jazz band, you have this, you that, yeah. the other. I mean, literally no kidding. I had a first year teacher who was my, uh, Dan Finley, who is a first year teacher, uh, straight out of college. Uh, he's from the drum corps world and he comes into our high school and he's trying to run a drum corps my freshman year. And my mom wrote him his first, uh, angry parent letter uh, because she was so mad, uh, at how much time he was taking. Mm. And I remember giving him the letter and saying, I disagree with everything that's in this <laughs> note, but I have to give it to you. And he looked at it and he read it and he like beamed with pride. He's like, this is my first angry parent letter. Thanks so much, Dakota. Um, and life went on. And, you know, I mean, listen, I, um, by the time I was like a sophomore, junior in high school, I ended up moving full time in with the Schneiders and they didn't blink. I called them up on the phone and said, Hey, um, you know, we're getting evicted again. Uh, can you come pick me up? And they said, absolutely. And then there I was and their guest room became my bedroom. They didn't hesitate to be like, great, here's another mouth we have to feed, or they had me drive their cars, even though I wasn't on their insurance. Like there's all these very adult things that I as a kid had no idea about that mm. when you think about what it must be like to take responsibility over a child's life mm -hmm. without the legal protection, mm -hmm. uh, it's crazy. Um, uh, you know, as I got into uh, applying to school, you know, my teachers really helped me. A, a new band director, Brian Widener, he went to Illinois State. And so I thought, well, I like band and he went there, so I'll go there. Mm -hmm. And I applied and he wrote me some really strong letters of recommendation. I got a massive scholarship through the Golden Apple Foundation that almost paid for my entire tuition as well as a bunch of other scholarships. Um, and, uh, you know, I went and auditioned and I was terrible. I was a terrible tuba player, Tessa, <laughs> you know, as in high school, you know, and I auditioned and they're just like, stop, stop. I didn't even get to finish my little etude. And there's like, listen, you're really bad, but, uh, it happens to be a low enrollment year. And if you promise to work hard, uh, we'll let you in. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into college. Um, you know, uh, but I did work hard and, uh, you know, ISU did a lot to help me stay there. You know, I ended up uh, getting a lot of grants and scholarships. And uh, when times got tough, the music department stepped in and gave me a scholarship. And mm. I was better at tuba by then. So I think they fed, felt better about that choice. <laughs> um, and I ended up graduating debt-free. 
you know, um, through grants and scholarships. And I'll also say too, there is this group of um, women, little side story, and, and if you wanna cut this, you can cut it, but um, one day in my, I'm in high school, senior year of high school, and uh, my guidance counselor calls me in. They were called guidance counselors back then. I know today they're called professional school counselors, but guidance counselor at the time, she pulls me in. She's like, hey, shut the door behind you. I'm like, all right. I've never really talked to this woman before, by the way, because I wasn't a kid who was on a college track. Mm. So a counselor didn't, you know, kind of whatever. Right. Um, as I'm closing the door, she's closing the blinds. I sit down and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this lady clearly, you know, is going to ask me to do something terrible. And she sits down and she slides me this envelope and it's full of cash. There's like 200 bucks in it. And it's all like twenties and fives and tens. And I'm like, what's this? And she's just like, there is a group of people who care about you and want you to have this. And I was like, I can't take money from anonymous sources. And of course I'm thinking to myself, oh, you know, this lady like knows I kind of grew up rough and blah, 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 blah. Like she's, you know, paying me to do something crazy. I'm thinking that like, I'm in, you know, a movie all of a sudden. Mm. And she says, no, really, like, please take this. There is a, you know, a group of women who uh, saw you do something and they asked about you and they want to support you. And they, uh, I told them about you and I told them that you were you know, going to be heading to college soon. And so they wanted to give you this. And they also said that they were going to give you like a hundred dollars a month until you graduate college. Wow. Uh, and I said, well, you got to tell me who they are. And she is no, I, they, they insist on being honest. I said, fine, here's the deal. I want to meet them when I graduate from school. And sure enough, like clockwork, Tessa, Every single month, there was a direct deposit in my bank account of 100 bucks, and every summer it was like $200. And I would write notes, and I just nicknamed them the Mystery Maidens because I had no idea who they are. I just knew they were a group of women who who were doing this. Uh, and it turns out that after I graduated, I went and met them, and it was it was a group of um, uh, of women. Their organization doesn't exist anymore, um, you know, but they were um, you know kind of a, a spinoff of a Rotary Club in a nearby town. Um, and, uh, that's what they do. They just help out people. Uh, and you know, again, my life is littered with these examples. I could tell you story after story. I can tell you the story of the financial aid advisor who, even though I wasn't on his caseload, helped me every single year. I can tell you the story of, um, you know, the person who got me a job on campus and let me sleep in the band library while I was reorganizing because I didn't have a place to live for a month and needed a paycheck. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the story of the dean who believed in my first nonprofit that I launched when I was in undergrad, uh, who gave us our first grant and, you know, on spec and just said, sure, go for it, go crazy. I can tell you about Dr. Robert Lee, who hired me straight out and involved me in grant writing that has allowed me to write $60 million of grant in the first decade of my professional career. And you know, uh, and that continues on. And the fact is, is that when I step back, I see all these people from different parts of a community coming together to make sure one person's successful. And that is profound. And uh, I do the work I do now, uh, one, because I owe all of them to continue this work. Like I owe it to them. They invested so much of me. And if I don't do this work, then who is? Mm -hmm. uh, and two, because um, you start to realize that not everyone has that kind of social capital. I'm a white man, I'm a white man who uh, was in a predominantly white uh, neighborhood uh, community, I'm a white man who grew up in predominantly white schools uh, and it went to a predominantly white institution. I was the exception. And I know for most of the faculty and staff and business owners and folks I interacted with, they too are white people and they see a white kid in front of them and they think, oh my gosh, this could be my kid. 
if you're a person of color, if you're a person of color who uh, grew up in a different neighborhood where you're not the exception, this story is not the exception, but is the rule. Mm-hmm. You have the weight of bias. You have the weight of lack of, uh, uh, of the social capital. And you have the an incredible weight of um, expectations that other people and places put on you that you must defy. And that's what we need to solve for. Um, it is very clear to me that we are all products of our communities in one way or another. And so, um, yeah, that's why I do this work because it makes a huge difference. And uh, we need to uh, make sure uh, that where you grow up and your race uh, doesn't matter uh, in terms of your outcomes. And uh, we need to make sure that uh, communities keep coming together to help people. Um, and that it shouldn't take, I mean, the last thing I'll say on this, sorry, is that, you know, um, it is a systems thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I, I wouldn't have had to go to all the great lengths and all the people around me wouldn't have had to do so much if the system worked, right. You know, I mean, our family was reported to DCFS countless times, nothing happened, you know, um, I, there's countless times where the system didn't work for me. And I had to find a workaround and people around me helped me find a workaround or went out of their way to help me. And they shouldn't have to do that. And so we have to make the system work better for everybody. And we can do that at the local level. Uh, You know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't some big federal action that, you know, made me who I am today. It wasn't some state program that suddenly, sure, I benefited from federal and state funds, but those were all locally implemented. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal work. I owe it to every other person who helped me. People that I can't even honestly remember, but I know played a role. I owe it to them to uh, do this kind of uh, partnership-based work. Um, so this way more people can be successful. Everyone's just trying to be successful in the world. And uh, we got to do our part. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is a very powerful example and i i think the thing that i one of the things that i admire most about you is the level of perspective that you bring to things and i don't just mean because of the work that you do but the thoughtfulness and just the way you really think deeply about what does this mean what does this show us what does this tell us what can we get out of this and the fact that you have done it for your own life and share it and is the and are so driven by it is makes it even more admirable so i just i am so thankful that that i can call you my friend and that you and that you you give me an hour of your time once in a while to talk on a podcast but then you give me a lot more of your time on the day to day to help us work through some of our problems so that we can do that work um, the kind of work that helped you right here in Southwest Florida. Well, thank you, Tessa. And um, you're a great friend and you're a great leader who's doing this work. Um, And I think that's the thing. I think at the end of the day, you know, you and I, and a lot of us always talk about like, how do we convince and, you know, engage uh, and get buy-in from a lot of our local leaders and local people at institutions and organizations and businesses do part of this work. And we can talk about all the messaging and framing tricks in the world. We can talk about coming up with a compelling data vision 
Uh, we can talk about all those things. But at the end of the day, the most compelling reason is just to ask somebody, catalog your life. How many times have you benefited from an organization or a group of people um, doing something that they didn't have to do, but they went out of the way to help you? Mm-hmm. And if you catalog your life and then start to figure out where those people are, those people aren't from one sector. They're not from one organization. They were people who either intentionally or unintentionally, knowing or unknowingly, came together around you. And now you are successful. You are in the job you are today. Mm-hmm. You're in the you're you're, you're 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 comfortable today. You're being prosperous today because you benefited from dozens probably of people and organizations that decided to take a risk on you. And don't you think it's your turn to do the same? Yeah. And don't you think it's your turn to do the same at a systems level? So you're not going one person by one person at a time. And yep. if you think it is, then come join future makers yeah. because that's what we're all about. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the most compelling reason catalog your life, see how you've benefited from people going above and beyond what's normal asked of them going above and beyond what their organization's mission is. And there you have the strongest case for collaboration mm-hmm. period. Yeah. Everything else is details. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I think it is, it is very, you know, you look at the numbers these days and more people are going through similar things that happened in your life and, um, and, and maybe even worse or harder challenges. Any one of those, those obstacles that you had to get, you know, through in order to get to where you are and the help that you got, any one of those could be, could be what set someone on a path of never, never achieving what they, what their life could be or what, you know, their goals, what they're, you know, achieving the success that they could have if others, or if the system worked better for them. And I think that the, the point is not lost on me that as more and more people are in a situation like yours or similar to yours and the system doesn't adapt then it will take literally more work from all of us to get folks where they need to be. And listen, you might say, oh, well, that's a like that's being a good Samaritan or that's being, you know, that's charity or it gets to a point where it starts to cost. There's a cost is much bigger than us just doing something because it makes us feel good. Right. I mean, we should do these things. It's the right thing to do. But, you know, I do talk to employers who have over a thousand vacancies a day. And I do see people that, that are falling out of, you know, falling out of the workforce or not even looking for a job anymore or working three or four jobs and not being able to make ends meet. They're being, you know, one emergency away from homelessness. And, and that has a, that has a large cost to all of us. And so I think, you know, I think that what you're saying is really important and it and it ties back to why future makers exist and what we're trying to do and that is that the system is not currently designed for the majority of students anymore. In mm-hmm. every day that passes, every for us here in Southwest Florida, every water crisis, every hurricane and now a pandemic gets us 
further and further away from a system that works for the majority of the students that we see. So I think it's a, I think it's a, I really appreciate you sharing that story um, because it, it speaks very, it speaks very, um, a, a, an important truth to the work that, that we're trying to do here. So. Yeah. And you know, Tessa, this is exactly why Luna Foundation and Kresge with their support saw the promise of the talent hub strategy in the national talent network. That is why they said, Hey, let's go find a way to permanently sustain this in a new home, build it because you know, you at future makers are not only doing that hard work, but also producing real outcomes. You're making the change. You are currently redesigning the system. And I know sometimes when you're in the thick of it as a fellow practitioner who does this work on a daily basis in our own communities as well, it is difficult sometimes to measure your progress in an objective way without looking at just the data um, to see how far you've come. So please take my word for it. You all are truly exemplary. You're a massive uh, presence in our national networks of nearly 100 of similar cross-sector partnerships that are out there. People are always learning from you, just as you're always learning from them. And I am really grateful, um, and our whole team at Civic Lab is incredibly grateful to uh, be tasked with and have the honor of serving your partnership as future makers and the 99 other partnerships uh, that we uh, get to serve through the National Talent Network and Talent Hubs, yeah. uh, because that's what it's all about. Um, you all are doing amazing work, um, and um, you know it's it's just a deep honor to be your partner um, and uh, to support you in any way we possibly can. Well, thank you for that. And I the feeling is very mutual. I think I quote someone from Civic Lab at least three or four times a day, and it I learn I've learned so much doing this work with with you all, and and it is. It is truly an honor. It's an honor to get to learn from the servant leadership mentality and this concept of improving the human condition and the generosity, the generosity of Civic Lab and the team. So so with that, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for diving in deep with me. We kind of took it in a different direction than I normally do on the podcast, but it's still it's still the same, right? Absolutely. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite, as always. Yeah. It's always a fun to chat with you and to, to be on your show. It's a great show. I listen to it all the time. It's, you know, it's on my feed. People should be subscribing today if they're not subscribed, yeah. because I know I am. And Thank you. Uh, it's a fantastic show. So yeah. it's always a pleasure to be on the show. All right. Well, we'll probably see you in season four. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you. Take care.